WOWDLP Tacoma Park. Dear listeners, you are tuned in to WOWD 94.3 FM. I am your host, Jack Gordon, and this is Interfaith-ish. Every other Wednesday, one hour at a time, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. This is our second episode, and I'm so happy you've chosen to join us on our expedition of interreligious, intercultural, intergalactic interlocution. Are you ready? All right, let's roll up our sleeves. It's time to get into some interfaith-ish. Dear listeners, yes, Interfaith-ish is official. It's good to be here, good to have a home on Tacoma Radio. And it's good to f- to be able to finally say it's spring. We got into it a little bit during our last episode. That spring is here. It's time for a host of holidays from uh, so many traditions, notably Easter, which was celebrated by Christians last week. And now we are in the midst of Passover, which began last Friday. Perhaps like me, some of you were out there and had a wonderful weekend full of festivities, time for family traditions. My family definitely is a a bag of mixed nuts, emphasis on the nuts, with a bunch of traditions and perspectives thrown together. And for us, Passover is, you know, it's really like another Thanksgiving, um, except that uh, instead of the head of the household standing to say a brief word about what we're f- thankful for before the meal, they kind of go on for about two hours about the entire history of the family before anybody can eat the main course. It's amazing. Um, we always have a great time in my family. We're up in the Catskills on my cousin's farm, a pig farm, ironically, because that's how the Jews in my family roll. Um, it's one cousin, actually, and I should say that there's actually a lot of diversity on our family. We've got secular humanist Jews. We've got a cousin who's going to yeshiva. We've got full-blooded Israelis. We've got uh, non-Jewish significant others. We've got my little Baha'i corner of the family. And usually we have a ton of people there. This year was a, a little smaller than usual, about 15 people. And normally it's complete insanity with everybody there. There's, it's uh, the rules of the farm, which are to say there are no rules and there are barefoot kids running all around, eating their weight in macaroons. We've got the older people who are going deaf, shouting over each other, even louder than the little kids. The weather was very nice. We went for a canoe ride. And then at some point, we all sit down and have this Passover Seder, and there's always some type of storytelling element and an artistic element and singing. And we've got the kids um, that are really at a fun stage right now. They're at an age where they can really participate and get into the theatrics. Um, and so the whole the whole thing is is really a lot of fun. We even ad- adopted this year a Sephardic tradition uh, that the Persian Jews do, where they run around and hit each other with scallions. That was a lot of fun. The kids really loved that one. So 
Um, the next day, even we went to a friend's house, and the kids had an Easter egg hunt in the in the yard of a, of a, of another farm down the way, and they all got buzzed on candy. So really an interfaith experience and good times all around. So I share this to say um, today I've assembled an internationally renowned panel of experts to speak on the experience of growing up in an interfaith family, um, how their families celebrate Passover, what meaning they derive from the holiday, how it connects to what they do, and how they live their lives. So dear listeners, I'm so happy to have with me one of my collaborators in this awesome radio project, Sue Katz-Miller, who's also author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family, and Rebecca Ennin, Deputy Director of Jews United for Justice. Thank you both so much for being here, and Hag Sameach, Happy Passover. Happy Passover. All right, all right. So, um, Rebecca, let's uh, let's start with you. I, uh, I I shared a little bit about how my Passover experience went with my family. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it was like in your household this weekend. Well, um, we had a ton of folks in from out of town staying with us, but we actually weren't hosting seders, which was great because we got all the company and none of the stress, or very little of the stress. Um, my uh, partner and our our child is uh, our toddler is is almost two, so he's not ready to really participate in the Seder, but he loves a party. Um, we went to two Seders at different friends' houses. Each of them was about 20 people, so pretty big. Um, and I run with a you know pretty heavy social justice crowd, <laughs> as you can imagine. Uh, pretty, pretty traditionally religious, but also pretty irreverently so. So there was a lot of um, pretty deep conversation about the meaning of liberation and who are we in the story now? Are we the pharaohs? Are we the Israelites? Are we the kind of Egyptians on the sidelines, um, delving pretty deep into the story. Um, and it was pretty funny. I, I, my crowd's pretty tight. So we were at one Seder the first night, and then literally half of that Seder went to the second night Seder mm, together, and the yeah. other half went to a different second night uh -huh. Seder. So um, it was great. It was like a like a 48-hour conversation about some of our favorite topics, accompanied with tons of great food and excellent wine and uh, staying up really late and singing songs together. Awesome. Awesome. And so how does that um, jive with what you experienced growing up? Is it, was it is similar? Is it different? You you come from a, a mixed family as well. So yeah. tell us a little bit about that. So my, my mother is a Brooklyn Jew, first generation. Her parents were immigrants and very unassimilated, spoke Yiddish at home. Um, and my dad's a uh, Catholic from Michigan, uh, like Irish and German Catholic, pretty like American Midwest kind of guy. And, uh, and neither of them is religious. They both grew up in very religious households and really similarly uh, like left home when they were 18 and kind of wanted to get away from all of that. Um, and they also split up when I was about two. So that's a really defining feature of my family is that I didn't grow up in one household uh, that was trying to integrate or balance or you know, thoughtfully bring together different traditions. It was really like two households with two family cultures. And obviously that goes way beyond religion. Like neither of my parents was a religious person, is a religious person, I should say. And they certainly weren't when I was growing up. Um, but it's almost like I grew up in a Jewish family over here and a Catholic family over there. Mm -hmm. um, and they did come together for holidays a lot. And so um, I have some pretty cherished memories of uh, being a little kid. And my dad would come um, to some of my mom's family seders. And my mom would come with me and my dad to go to church on Easter and then to go out to brunch or lunch or something like that. Um, 
And I, you know, I give them a lot of credit for trying to come together, you know, as, as a family in those times. But um, my family satyrs um, were great. Uh, I think there were sort of two versions of my family's Seder. One was in my grandparents' Jewish nursing home, which um, if you have ever if you ever went to a nursing home as a child, you might have had that feeling of like hundreds of old people like deeply loving you. And in a Jewish nursing home, I think it's especially true. You know, there are a lot of elderly Jews who just like cherished us kids. Um, and especially on Passover when there's a lot of stuff about like the youngest child should ask these questions or kids need to do this part or whatever. So, you know, imagine like the rec room of this nursing home filled with elderly people and like me and my cousins and a couple other kids. Um, and that was pretty, you know, straight down the line, not a whole lot of like social justice or, you know, radical reimaginings. Um, but that feeling of, um, of memory and love was so strong. Mm -hmm. um, and then the satyrs that my family would have at home uh, two of my aunts were like pretty hardcore second wave Jewish feminists. So they had been at the like early lesbian feminist satyrs and they had the photocopies to prove it. And so, you know, the satyr would kind of go back and forth between a Maxwell House Haggadah, which for your listeners who aren't familiar is like the driest, most boring, you know, unadorned version of this ritual to like reading poetry by women resistance fighters right. in Europe, like during the Holocaust about like their struggle making those connections exactly yeah. so uh so i think that i really my current life really bears bears the fruit of both of yeah, those yeah reflects those that satyrs yeah interesting interesting sue how about you what um what was uh satyr like for you this past weekend and how did it um correlate with what you experienced growing up in your family so <clears throat> sorry my weekend, because we are a doing both family, involved flying up to Boston to do a Seder and then driving to Long Island to celebrate Easter, which was Sunday. So you had a very tight overlap this year of the two, which is more of a logistical challenge for people who are right. doing both. Right. Um, but it's not impossible, and they converge like that every three years or so. So if you've grown up, you know, I've spent more than 50 years being in an interfaith family now, so I sort of know how to do these things. Um, it was a beautiful Seder because my dad is 93. He's my Jewish parent, and he still leads the Seder. And in fact, I found this yellowed piece of paper folded into one of the Haggadot that had his notes of which pages to skip and which pages to do. And it was marked 1977 First Parish Church. Hmm. Now that's because my father was one of the only Jewish people in my little Protestant New England town growing up. And the Unitarian Church asked him to come lead the model Seder when they were studying Judaism. And so he designed an hour-long Seder to fit the Sunday school hour, and he would lead it every year at the Unitarian Church. And at some point, we came to realize when there were a lot of small children and a lot of you know Protestant and Catholic family members, that that hour was kind of perfect. So I think he began using his notes that he used for the Unitarian Church in our home Seder. And that's, he unfolded it. And, you know, he's 93, but he still led the Seder. So that was a very beautiful thing. Um, then we drove to Long Island, and my husband's brother is an Episcopal priest. So we had Easter with that family. But at both the Seder 
and the Easter, there were Jews, Protestants, and Catholics, mm. because we are a multi-generational interfaith family now. And people have made different choices about raising Jewish kids, raising right. Catholic kids, raising kids both. But these are holidays where we do it together, and it works. Yeah. So yeah. Um, in my childhood... My parents chose to raise Jewish children in a Reformed Jewish context. They could make that choice. And so we were given the label of Jews. Um, but it was a very close, happy family with extended family on both sides. And so part of what I talk about when I go out talking about interfaith families around the country is the idea that these are formative experiences, no matter what label you choose for your children, no matter matter what religious education you choose for your children, they are going to be formed by being part of an extended interfaith family in ways that I see as very positive, as well as there being challenges. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, I think that that, that um, runs true with our family, too, that we we've, it's always been a, a multi-generational experience. Um, people make the effort to to be there, as I said before. Early, usually, we have um, a lot more people there this this year because of um, uh, some some recent moves and other family situations. We had a few less cousins there, but when you've got all the cousins there, you really get to see, you know, plus the spouses, plus you know, however many of the older generation, um, which is now my parents' generation, being there and you know, growing up. Um, grandparents and and their siblings and so forth um you can really see the the through line between some of these traditions and definitely the places where these things deviate um i remember so clearly watching an old it must have been a video transfer of a uh 16 millimeter film or, or super 8 film that mm. that my father's family shot um back in i don't know maybe the maybe maybe the 50s or something. Um, and they, the look of the Seder was so similar and yet so very wildly different from, from what we experienced because everybody was, was dressed up very nicely. And, <laughs> but there was still sort of that, that frantic, you know, mad energy that you get when you've got on one end of the table somebody who's 80 and the other, the other end of the table somebody who's eight or eight months or whatever the case is. So that's a, that's a joy to see. Rebecca, in, in your instance, what you described this weekend, um, did you have uh, a good amount of age diversity as well in the room? So the two satyrs that I was at this weekend were kind of majority like people my age. So mm -hmm. I'm 35. Mm -hmm. And then there was a couple of the parent generation there and a bunch of the kids. So, you know, we are all definitely in our kid kid raising years, right. me and my friends. Um, and most of us are transplants to this area. So this was like the people who stayed here in the DMV, you know, didn't go off to back to wherever their families are. Mm -hmm. And my family, my Jewish family is extremely uh, like secular and chilled out. So in the last couple of years when we've had a Seder at all, we've had it like on the weekend that was convenient for people, <laughs> including I think last year we uh, moved it to May and then didn't have a Seder, just had no, a family no. get together weekend. Right. Um, which, you know, is I feel some loss about that, but it's also, I just see how as people get older, and, uh, you know, I have cousins who are a lot older with kids in college or kids in high school, like their schedules are super complicated. And I think there's a big tension there. Like I'm much more religious, more traditionally religious than I was raised. And in part, that is because I like the structure that that brings. And I feel some loss that my family 
you know, that our schedules are so dictated by the rest of our lives and that the, you know, whether it's faith or whether it's belief or whether it's just like the need to be together, um, some, you know, takes a backseat um, to some of the other pulls that we have in our lives. But I think some of it's also just inevitable. I have a really big family and it's a lot harder to get people together now that we're all scattered and raising our own kids and Right. And so on. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Interfaithish on WOWD 94.3 FM Tacoma Radio. We're having a discussion about Passover traditions, what's similar, what's different, and how do we navigate these things when we have interfaith families. So, Rebecca, you just touched on a, a point that I wanted to um, tease out a little bit more. Um, so, you're coming from a family that wasn't particularly religious, but you yourself have adopted a more religious Jewish practice um, in your own life. So I wanted to know, how do you prepare for Passover? And what elements for you are purely material? And you know, how do you stay intentionally mindful about including the spiritual dimensions? Oh, such a big question. Um, well, I don't know, you know, Probably you and many of your listeners don't have my group of friends on Facebook uh, or or similar, but I would say the last couple of weeks has been like a kind of long uh, like cry of anguish as people <laughs> try to clean their houses for right. Passover. Uh, you know, there's a custom to get all of the chametz or leavened products, so <clears throat> you know, wheat products and other kinds of grain products out of your house, and that goes way beyond bread. It's like you know, your va your vanilla extract, does it have alcohol in the ingredients? That's probably grain alcohol, so you mm, have to get mm -hmm. rid of that. Um, so you can kind of take that to a, whatever different level of um, detail you want. And uh, I have gone back and forth over the years about how stringent I want to be. Um, and this year we had, we've been having a rough time in both in work and in our family life, mm. just stuff, stuff going, going hard mm -hmm. um you know nothing that could have been prevented but we decided to kind of take it easy on the right. cleaning and the everything uh because I felt like there was a lot of other spiritual challenges going on and i don't know that i spiritually prepared myself for me i often i'm, I'm not a person who is a great plan ahead person you know i've and i actually was one of the things i love about ritual is that a well-constructed ritual like takes you through the process and maybe you've prepared for it, but maybe you haven't. And I think um, a Seder itself is a great example of that. Like even if you didn't do any preparation at all um, to think about liberation and to think about getting free and to feel gratitude for our freedom, like the Seder takes you there. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I tried to, I did, I did boil my silverware. I confess <laughs> I took out my special Passover pots. I put all the condiments containing vinegar in a box and, gave them to my housemate to put away in her fridge mm -hmm. and uh and I boiled the silverware. Great. How about you, Sue? Do you guys do any special preparation around the way at the Katz Miller household? Um well, usually I do travel and I'm I'm from Boston and that's where my father is. Mm -hmm. So usually I travel to wherever he is. And so there's not a lot of focus on my own house. Um I I'm not host. I'm hosting, but I'm hosting up at his house, not at my house. So it makes it complicated. And then I'm flying in at the last minute to do it there. Mm -hmm. So really, logistically, it would be hard to do something on the level that Rebecca's talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but also, my Jewish family has been reform for generations. So that's not part of our tradition. Mm -hmm. um, it's more about the evening itself. You know, I do 
avoid bread for the week and eat matzah instead. And that's a little bit tricky when you are celebrating Easter um, because Easter traditionally involves a lot of bread. ham, biscuits, <laughs> right. um, a lot of things that are not kosher for Passover or just not kosher. Not kosher. So, you, you know, you have to um, negotiate all of that if you want to have that intention, which I do. I do think it, it creates a certain perspective for the week that you're more mindful of what you are eating. And that's a mindfulness practice that is very positive but I don't have a particular feeling that it has to be a certain way. You know, it's almost as if, if I was avoiding, um, I don't know, green vegetables, it would create a mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the way we do it. If you're just joining us, this is Interfaith-ish every other Wednesday from 9 to 10 a.m. on WOWD. We look at our different religious traditions and beliefs. We bring on guests who present unique perspectives on what it's like to have religious traditions, to live in the world with religious traditions, or perhaps to live in the world without any religious beliefs, but are looking to bring together and build community with people of different backgrounds. I'm here today with Sue Katz-Miller, author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family, and Jewish community organizer Rebecca Ennen. We're discussing Passover traditions, specifically in interfaith families. Sue, so, um, we were talking a little bit about your family upbringing and how you were raised by um, interfaith, uh, an interfaith couple, your parents, one Christian, one Jewish. Um, I'm curious how you are passing your traditions on to the next generation with your kids and what their formation is like? So my parents chose one religion for the kids, which is a choice that a lot of people make. My husband and I chose to raise our kids with both. That was an intentional idea. We wanted them to have religious literacy in both as well as feeling uh, comfortable in both spaces and, you know, s have strong connections to both sets of extended family. And we were lucky to end up in Washington, D.C. because there is one of the three major groups across uh, nationally uh, here in Washington for interfaith families who are raising kids with interfaith education. It's called the Interfaith Families Project. And there's over 100 families there together with a Sunday school for kids where they learn both religions. There are programs like this in Chicago, in New York. They've kind of grown up independently across the country as more and more couples have made this decision to do both rather than picking one. Mm -hmm. um, but what I talk about when I talk to interfaith couples is the idea that any path you choose, there's going to be benefits, there's going to be drawbacks. And no one path is going to work for every interfaith couple. So it's really very dependent on your beliefs and practices, your partner's beliefs and practices, your geography, what communities are available to you uh, in terms of what pathway you choose. Mm -hmm. And what do you think your your kids have um, gotten from this particular experience? Particularly, I guess, when we're, when we're looking at one of the, the key holidays in the Jewish calendar, Passover, what, what do you think their relationship is with, with the holiday? If you could be so bold as to, as to speak for them as their mother. Uh, 
the last time I checked, they each described their own identities as Jewish Christian swirl with a ribbon of Buddhism. <laughs> so it's an ice cream metaphor. Mm -hmm. uh, my younger child just turned 21, so they're officially both adults now. Mm -hmm. So I really don't like to speak for them. But I mean, observing them in a family context, I can see that they have deep affection and knowledge of, of Passover rituals, which is what I wanted them to have. And they also have that for Easter. So um it's interesting for me usually in an interfaith family's context the conversation tends to skew towards judaism and there's a lot of reasons for that it's the minority religion it feels more threatened by assimilation and all of that makes sense but part of what i do is to remind people that there is the other side the other partner may have beliefs and practices. Uh, they may not just be a neutral, okay, um, let's talk about Passover and not talk about Easter. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and I feel that even here, which is funny because Jack, you you have a, a more complex identity. I mean, you're not just Jewish, you're Baha'i, right? Yeah, and yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking about how, you know, how those types of questions and decisions have have played out in my life. My my parents, um, similarly to yours, made the decision to raise their children Jewish. Um, my mother wasn't uh, a part of a particular church community, um, and and so you know there was a stronger emphasis on on the need for you know Jewish continuation and so forth from from my from my dad's side um and i think that was something that she embraced you know obviously um there's there's a lot of wonderful cultural traditions that uh, i think probably were very exciting to her to to learn about and and she learned prayers and was was very encouraging of us um and and we did have as you said we had this sort of uh, additional element of um folks in my family also being baha'i on uh, on my mom's side um, so that was something that really manifested itself in my life later in college when I was doing my own spiritual seeking and understanding with the world and everything like that. So, yeah, I think it, at this point, it's it's funny to when I'm in situations where I'm either labeled as as just Baha'i um, mm -hmm. or or people I'm, or it's very easy for me to slip into sort of the code switching of just speaking Jewishly mm -hmm. and people don't know about this whole other element uh, to my life. And then it's kind of confusing when they come out, even though for myself, I've reconciled it quite well. And I feel like there's a wonderful dynamic relationship with, with my Jewish culture and heritage and, and, and my embrace of that and, and the continuation of that in my own family. Um, while at the same time, my day-to-day -day religious practice um, would would obviously be Baha'i in terms of in terms of prayers and community association first and foremost and so forth. Right. So the confusion is often in the eye of the beholder. This is what we find that yeah. those of us who come from complex, rich backgrounds, it's normal for us. That's we right. feel whole. We've made decisions. We know who we are. We understand how we benefit from that complexity, but when you run into people who come from a more monofaith context, 
they're confused. Right, right. <laughs> and so good segue. Um, Rebecca actually wrote a very timely op-ed piece for The Forward, which for those who don't know is a, is a uh, renowned uh, Jewish publication. Um, and the focus of this was really standing up and advocating for those interfaith kids and saying we are here and, and saying very, very boldly at the end of the article, we are the future. So, Rebecca, tell us a little about, about, about that. What was the motivation for that? And where were you coming from when you wrote that article? <clears throat> sure. Um, I mean, I'm really coming from a lot of frustration. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm 35. Um, I really want to, like, lift up again what Sue just said about, like, we're comfortable with ourselves. Uh, you know, those of us who grew up in interfaith families often, um, the way that I think about it is, like, I had a whole period of my life where I identified as, like, I'm Jewish and Christian. And that was when I was young. And then when I was in my teen years, I got a lot of messaging that like that, like you can't be that. Or if you say that you're half Jewish and half Christian, then you are saying you are like divided within yourself. And that that just wasn't how I identified or what I thought. And as I became through my teen years, and then in my early 20s, increasingly more traditionally religious as a Jew, um, I really saw really inside the Jewish world, how much anxiety there was and how uncomfortable people were with hearing about my Catholic family or my upbringing where we went to church, you know, on the regular for some periods of my childhood and, um, and that I still go to church and I still like church and it's part of my religious life and whatever. And, um, and I've been talking about this for years and, and writing about it, you know, somewhat less formally. And, uh, this article really came out of, um, in the Jewish press, it feels like every six months, there's some eruption around the issue of intermarriage, which is not even to say, you know, interfaith kids or people like us who are interfaith adults or, you know, adults who grew up in interfaith families. Um, and the most recent round of it was a particular branch of Judaism. Their rabbinical association is having elections. And apparently one of the big issues that the elections are going to turn on is you know, how opposed to intermarriage are they? Are they really opposed to intermarriage or are they kind of opposed to intermarriage? And to <laughs> me, this just felt like I'm just fed up with it. And, you know, everything from, uh, you know, sitting at a Shabbat lunch in somebody's house where they're just making kind of casually nasty remarks about interfaith families, like as if they would assume that nobody from an interfaith family is there, like maybe they don't know me that well, although I'm kind of a loudmouth, so they probably don't know me at all. <laughs> um, to just this casual assumption that it's okay to, uh, you know, make denigrating remarks about uh, Jews who marry people of other faiths or their kids or, you know, those people they don't care or whatever. And, and it just, uh, whether it's the casual conversation around a, a holiday table or a meal or the kind of elite conversation that plays out in the pages of the forward. And the forward is a setting in which this often happens, yeah. where some piece of news happens around the issue of intermarriage, and then 20 people write op-eds about, you know, the, how the Jewish people are disappearing, and intermarriage is destroying us, and blah, 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 blah. And it's very ignorant. And uh, really what I wanted to say was uh, that the people who are writing these things are really not speaking out of either lived experience or like any kind of reasonable understanding of the situation that intermarriage has already happened. It's been happening for decades. They talk about it as if, you know, we need to keep preventing it now or welcome people now, but there's people who are our age and much, much older who have many years of experience living in these sure. families, have our own vision of what real welcoming would look like as opposed to a kind of half-hearted, uh, we kind of welcome you because we have to, which is often, I think, the tone that comes across in 
both lived experience and in the writing about it. So that was where my that was where my piece came from was wanting to recenter the voices of people in uh, interfaith families, in mixed families, and who grew up in those families. Mm -hmm. And you're somebody that is working tirelessly day in and day out, you know, organizing within the Jewish community, but also with partners on, on a variety of social issues. I imagine on, on some level there's an interfaith element to that work, whether explicitly or just as a, as a matter of course because you're interacting with different people whose, whose lives are affected by um, issues of, of um, you know, workers' rights and, and wages and so forth here in, in the district and the, and the surrounding area. So I wonder how, how that tends to, how that plays out when, when you're talking about people who, who may either just personally or coming from, from um, a perspective of, of embracing not only um, Jewish work and wanting to organize, a, a, a Jewish heritage in, in their work organizing Jewish community, but also um, maybe being part of those other communities as well. Yeah, I think um, it's complicated because I think sometimes the logic of um, building community and the logic of building power are not necessarily the same. Hmm. And so one of the things that I love about this conversation is we're hearing all the different ways that our families, that are that our families that we grew up in, uh, worked and and dealt with these issues, and then the different ways that we are shaping our our families now. Um, all of us as adults, um, but in political organizing, um, the the nuances of every individual person's story don't really matter as much. Sometimes they matter in terms of putting out a, a message, um, mm -hmm. you know, publicly. But um, I think one of the challenges around interfaith political organizing is that that tends to look more like the Jews are over here, and the Protestants are over here, and the Catholics are over here, and the Muslims are over here, and the Bais over here, and et cetera, et cetera. And we kind of all come together as if like we're um, you know, atomized groups that like build something for a moment in order to exert our political power. Mm -hmm. But if you would look at internally any of those groups, every single human being in each of those groups is like a incredible, you know, world unto themselves. Um, but for the purpose of political power, we kind of have to have a form of unity um, that often papers over those differences um, if we're going to make change. And I think that that's a tension in interfaith work, that there's interfaith work that is about knowing each other more deeply, knowing each other as individuals more deeply and knowing our communities more deeply. And mm -hmm. I definitely have moments where I am speaking for Jews and feel like I'm erasing whole parts of myself and whole parts of other people in my community, um, you know, well beyond just what, you know, what are our other non-Jewish parents, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, um, you know, I've, I've come, especially in the current era, to see how um, what's really important in politics is power. Um, and power is very blunt. Uh, it's, not, it's not complicated. It's not about individual stories. It's about, like, do we together have the ability to push ahead the change that we want to see? Um, you know, do we have more power than the corporate lobbyists mm -hmm. in whatever context? Um, I could say a lot more about that, but I'll, I'll stop there. Oh, I do want to say one yeah. other thing, though, which um, is in response to something that Sue said earlier, which I thought was really interesting, is that it's true that um, the, the volume on the Jewish side of the conversation often gets really turned up high. Mm -hmm. I think there's like, I think you said, you said it very well. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, that it's a minority religion, that there's more of a threat of assimilation. And I think there's also, especially in the Christian context, the, the history of like 
Christian oppression directly of Jews as Jews, and that there's a kind of an ugly history there um, in the church um, where for a thousand years in Europe, the Jews were like the official enemy of the Christian church, the stated enemy of the church and the church, the church as an organ of the state. Um, so I think that some of, sometimes that, that discomfort, that feeling of not just being a minority, but actually we are in families with people who have the heritage of the people who, you know, like killed our other, our, our ancestors killed our other ancestors. And that is, that is uncomfortable here. Here we are with their blood in our same body. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the I think that the other piece of it is that Christianity has gotten so commercialized and trivialized, you know, and I I feel that very fully. Like I don't feel like I have a real grasp of how observant Christians experience Easter spiritually. Um, mm -hmm. Well, that's something that that hopefully we'll be able to explore in in future episodes of Interfaith Ish. If you are just joining us, we are uh, talking about uh, the the issues regarding interfaith families, particularly in the context of the Passover tradition. This is Interfaith Ish on WOWD Tacoma Park. Uh, Sue, I wonder if you um, can tell us a little bit from the bird's eye view of things where if we are looking to the future we're thinking about the future where do you see um, a lot of these concerns about um, intermarriage and so forth how do you see it how do you see it playing out in the long run based on the research that you've done and 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 I guess particularly in the US well first I just want to say my interfaith parents got married in 1960. So for me, it was a, a kind of a lonely experience for a long time. And I'm very excited to have new voices like Rebecca's joining um, in affirming a lot of the ideas that I've been writing about. Uh, I also want to say in terms of the commercialization of Christianity, uh, you know, Christianities are incredibly diverse and there is, you know, deep spirituality in everything from Catholicism to Presbyterianism to Unitarian Universalism, which is, you know, we can have a whole discussion about to what degree that's Christian. But um, I think it's important to keep in mind that a lot of us have family members who are spiritual Christians and not just, you know, Santa Claus Christians. Um, it's easier in a way if you're Jewish and your partner is not, it is a more secular Christian. It's easier than to have Judaism be the spiritual component of your family. But there are families where both partners are, you know, have a spiritual connection to their tradition. Mm -hmm. So I just want to be mindful of that. Sure. Um, your question is about where we're going. What's interesting to me also is that in these interfaith activism, interfaith dialogue, um, programs and conferences and communities that have by and large sprung up since 9-11, which is sort of, you know, something that's positive that's happened, that we've become more aware of reaching out across religious boundaries and working together and working together on issues of justice. Um, what I see is that often people are being asked to represent a mono-religious viewpoint. 
So, you know, Rebecca might come to the table and speak as a Jew. I'm seeing a tremendously high number of people from complex religious backgrounds who are inspired by their backgrounds to do that interfaith peacemaking, to do that interfaith activism. And yet they have to kind of pass. They're not really given permission or space to present themselves as a more complex religious being. And I think that we're missing an opportunity to benefit from what's positive about having that 24-7 experience of doing interfaith bridge building in a family that then gives you skills that help you to work across communities in a larger sense. Mm -hmm. So I'm optimistic that as we move forward with more and more people from complex religious backgrounds involved in interfaith dialogue, interfaith activism, um, that we're going to have some benefit and we're going to see some of those nuances and some of those skills being brought into that arena. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with, with what you're saying. I think that from what I've observed a lot of times, particularly when you're thinking of, you know, maybe in, in similar situations to what Rebecca was referring to earlier, when you're speaking publicly on behalf of or you're, or you are the face of an organization or what have you, the the narrative that you present or represent often needs to be sort of the simple, most identifiable as possible. And if you are complex in that, whether it's in, it, even even to the extent of being from a tradition that people aren't as familiar with, and that could, that could be basically not Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, you know, they, people are, are kind of looking like this is a wild card, and I'm not sure what to do with this person. So add to that, <laughs> you know, the additional piece of I am from a complex family, and I haven't just eschewed completely, you know, a half of myself or stepped away from it, but I've I've embraced the other side, or I've decided to pick up a third tradition, or or you know whatever the case is. There's a um, I think that that complexity is something that more and more we're going to be faced with and have to reckon with, particularly as this um, younger generation of leaders who are coming up, you know, like your your grown children at this point, um, certainly like my young daughter. Um, I I don't know, Rebecca, with 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 your son are you are you thinking about these things and how you're how you're going to give that give him a, a a formation that's not only just grounded in judaism but also how it relates to other the other people that he'll be encountering in the world so i've kind of gone the you know as i said i'm i'm pretty traditionally religious at this point although in some pretty idiosyncratic and <laughs> you know very feminist ways um and um to be honest, uh, one of the things that I feel sad about in my upbringing is that I didn't get um, a lot of religious education, and I had to um, educate myself, uh, you know, as a teenager and um, in college and, and later. And I spent some time in yeshiva, and um, and um, and I, you know, I I deeply honor my parents and their choices, and um, and they were very respectful of what did I want to learn about once I was able to say that. Um, but for Misha, my, my son, who's almost two, um, you know, he's pretty little now. So Jewish education is like 
music and <laughs> food and right. being together and Shabbat. Right. Um, but for now, you know, we've, we're raising him Jewish and he's going to know about his heritage. And as I said, I love church and go, um, and I'm continuing trying to find more ways to be more enmeshed in, um, Christian religious life through people that I know who, for whom that is their practice. Um, but, you know, we all respond to whatever we didn't get in our own childhoods. And so I'm so far more leaning in the direction of um, a really rich and, and possibly pretty tradition, traditional Jewish religious education for him. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in, in Jewish uh, religious education, there's big questions about how much is this about kind of culture and music and so on, and how hard are you going on, like, Hebrew to be able to read and study our sacred texts. And that for me is a hugely important part of my own practice was having to learn to read Hebrew and Aramaic as an right. adult. And, you know, I'm not ready to send him to a yeshiva day school where he's going to spend half of every day studying the Talmud. But um, I don't want him to be learning Aramaic when he's 27, like I had to do when my brain was already <laughs> fully calcified Full and completely unable to accept new language learning. <laughs> right, right. Well, we're definitely looking forward to uh, what the next generation has in store and um, and what the rest of the week has in store. It's a, you know, we're, we're as we said at the beginning, we're in the midst of Passover here, so I want to wish both of you a, a continued uh, happy Passover and, um, and uh, you know, save me some, some matzah brai when you go home. Um, <laughs> I uh, want to bring us to sort of the end of our, our show here. Before we go, I want to um, share that the Tacoma Porch Music Festival, now in its sixth year, is going to be Saturday, May 12th, from 2 to 6 p.m. You can stroll the residential streets of Old Town Tacoma, listening to area musicians perform at over 20 homes. You'll find a, match, a map uh, and musician info for the May 12th, Tacoma Porch Music Festival at TacomaPorch.net. So, dear listeners, that's a wrap on our special Passover episode here of Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests, Rebecca Ennin and Sue Katz-Miller, for joining me today. I also want to thank our uh, other fellow Interfaith-ish astronaut, our Interfaith-istronaut. I'm going to make that work somehow. Uh, Miranda Hovmeyer, who I hope is listening out there. Um, shout out to Tacoma Radio's Marika and Steve for bring, bringing us in from the cold and giving us a home here at Tacoma Radio. And uh, shout out to Jeff Philosopher, who hooked us up with our theme music and tracks. And a big thank you to you, our dear listeners, for spending your time with us. We want to know, to quote the great Dar Williams, are you out there? Can you hear this? Write to us at interfaithish at gmail.com to let us know. How are we doing? Did you learn something new? Do you have any interfaith-ish that you wish to dish? You can send a little note to interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks on Wednesday, April 18th at 9 a.m., with our next live episode. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org. Go there for a full program schedule. Up next will be Borderlines with Buck.
Bobby Hill on the People's Choi Voice of Choice here, Tacoma Radio, WOWD 94.3 FM.